Hi, this is Gary Sheffer, and I'm the Sandra A. Frazier Professor of Public Relations at Boston University's College of Communication. I'm here with my podcast partner and CCO at Enbridge, Mike Fernandez, for the 102nd episode of the crux of the story. Hi, how you doing, Gary? Oh, Mike, I'm doing well. The Yankees are two and one, so you know, only that's 159 right, right. games to go. Uh, but you know, uh, this is a a, a, a sports fans uh, real time of the year where people get very excited. You know, you got you had the NCAA, you know, basketball March Madness. You've got uh, preparation for NBA and NHL playoffs uh, and the baseball season. Uh, just kicked off, so uh, so that's yeah. great. But I, I'm I'm really excited about today's program. Very interested in today's topic. In the actually, when I was in college, I had an internship where I worked for a research arm in the U.S. House of Representatives. And the first project I worked on dealt with a study of uh, labor reform uh, efforts in the U.S. at the time. Excellent. Well, then I'm going to let you <laughs> ask all the questions today, Mike. Uh, no, I, we do. We're going to talk about labor in the U.S. and uh, union organizing. And our guests have written uh, about it recently and studied it uh, extensively. Here's the setup for this th- discussion. In the U.S., unions are enjoying a res- resurgence by many reports after decades of erosion in membership. According to a recent Gallup poll, 71% of Americans approve of unions, the highest point since 1965. In addition, the federal agency that oversees union elections, the National Labor Relations Board, reported a 53% uptick in petitions filed during the most recent fiscal year. In 2022, unions won more than 600 elections in the first half of the year, the highest tally in nearly 20 years, according to Bloomberg Law's database of election statistics. And unions are showing up in some previously unlikely places, such as university campus settings, including dorms. I just read a story in the Boston Globe about resident assistants unionizing, coffee shops, and as workers launch a a series of high profile and successful, for the most part, unionization drives at nationwide chains, such as Amazon, REI, Apple, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's. Politics, of course, always plays a large part in union discussions. And President Biden has declared that he aspires to be the most pro-union president in history. As a result of these trends, union organizing is an issue that many of our listeners, chief communications officers, and their teams have had to manage in collaboration with HR, of course, legal, and other senior executives. Today, we are joined by two experts on this topic, Roy Bahat and Thomas Kohan. They both recently wrote an article in Harvard Business Review on how businesses should and shouldn't respond to union organizing. Roy is a venture capitalist at Bloomberg Beta, a firm focused on the future of work, and he teaches at UC Berkeley. He also convenes the Aspen Institute's Business Roundtable on Organized Labor and is a commissioner on the California Governor's Future of Work Commission. Thomas is the George M. Bunker Professor Emeritus at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He is a co-founder of the Worker Empowerment Research Network. Welcome to The Crux, Roy and Tom. 
Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hello, this is Gary Shepard. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So um, that's a long setup um, uh, on a topic that... Uh, Seems rather simple on its face, but um, is replete with complexity. And what you wrote about really struck me in in Harvard Business Review recently, and it's how I sort of discovered your work. And one of the things you wrote about is that some business leaders are not changing their approach to engagement with employees during organizing attempts and are responding by fighting unionization. Uh, recently, in collaboration with the Aspen Institute and MIT, you have been working with a group of business leaders and a variety of industries to understand how they might constructively respond to the new wave of labor organizing. Roy, why did you undertake these discussions? As a business person, I look out at the economy we've got, and it's obviously not working for the vast majority of people. And so, you know, for more than a decade, I've been running this venture capital fund that focuses on the future of work and trying to figure out why it wasn't working. And I think there are a number of different answers, you know, including uh, a handful of corporations that have enough power that they can distort the market and suppress wages for people, Um, you know, the degradation of... uh, you know, the social floor, if you will, in the United States, struggles that people have to get health insurance, um, you know, the rise of contracting as a form of um, of work where, you know, many, many more people no longer have the protections that a normal, you know, W-2 providing job provides to people. And I was trying to figure out what some of the root causes were of this. And very simply, you know, one way to look at it is workers just don't have enough power. And so if you think about the things that can create power for workers, then organizing, you know, working together as one, whether in a union, which has been the core way it's been done in the United States or in other ways, seems like the only good answer. And, you know, the reason I think it's fascinating is because, uh, most business leaders in the U.S. a haven't thought about it very much because you know they sort of think of unions like the library. It's something that used to be important in the past and is no longer. And b in the last couple of years, we've just seen this upswell in you know people willing to take the risk to organize at some of the best known companies in the world. And I saw it in tech. We now see it you know in everything from you know, Starbucks to Amazon to, you know, Frito-Lay, um, you know, UPS has rumblings, et cetera. And so I, as, a, as a student of work, I just decided I needed to understand this better. And Tom has been one of my, one of my teachers. Well, that's great. Um, Roy, Tom, welcome. Um, you write in the article in HBR that uh, Gary referenced in the intro uh, that by attempting to unionize, employees are trying to communicate with their employers uh, versus 
abandoning the company, finding another job elsewhere. Uh, Tom, how are most companies responding to this new wave of union organizing? And how do you recommend they should or shouldn't respond? Well, there's a mix out there. Uh, the traditional approach still dominates, and that is companies do whatever they can legally and many times uh, beyond the law and break the law to uh, suppress organizing and activities. And that's been the dominant uh, strategy that I've observed and uh, uh, studied over many years. And, and by and large, companies uh, can get away with it because the law is so broken and so weak that the penalties for even violating the law are inconsequential relative to the uh, perceived benefits. And so, so we have a real problem in uh, uh, addressing uh, uh, those companies that uh, suppress union organizing as a knee-jerk reaction. And that's what uh, Roy and I are working on. Is there an alternative? And we think there, we not only think, we see it. Some companies are accepting uh, the fact that the law says employees should have a voice in making this decision. It's not that employers should uh, be the ones who make the decision. And so they respect uh, uh, worker rights and they either uh, uh, take a neutral approach or leave it to the employees to, to decide. Perhaps they express their views on, uh, on uh, why they think it's not a good idea. That's within their rights. But uh, uh, there are uh, steps that they can take than to uh, respect worker rights so that if workers do vote to unionize, they don't start off in such an adversarial relationship that makes uh, uh, it almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that things won't go well. So we're really engaged in uh, identifying, number one, first, respect worker rights and follow the law. Number two, uh, recognize that you have an enormous amount of power over these employees and anything you say is gonna be perceived as uh, 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 a powerful force that may uh, 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 look like retaliation. So stay within the law, think about how you wanna build a relationship if the employees make the choice, but leave that choice to them so uh, to make. A little bit of a, of, of a sidebar here, uh, on, on the conversation, and that is, um, I'm wondering, uh, has, has, has this become stickier as we've gone to more virtual work environments and as the, there's more flexible work? Um, is that prompting other kinds of behaviors from companies maybe taking uh, work that can be done virtually and placing it someplace else in the world that where where you know wages might be even less and is this impacting this discussion well companies have been doing that for decades so there's nothing new about that uh, the globalization has given uh, many big companies an option of lower cost labor cost environments and so they've been doing that but before that uh, companies went to mm -hmm. the southern part of the country from the north uh, to escape unions. And so there's there's nothing new about that. The fact that there's more uh, um, uh, advanced communication that allows and supports uh, um, remote locations uh, and, and offshoring or subcontracting work just uh, facilitates that more. But that's a longstanding strategy. So I don't see that as new. 
it makes it easier in some ways. And now you have what our, our colleague calls the fissurization of work where you can um, do what Google does and a uh, majority of their workforce are contract workers. And they say, mm -hmm. not our responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's the contract worker. You want to organize, go organize the contract company. So that adds another dimension to this, mm -hmm. uh, but it's a longstanding strategy and not, not particularly new, just maybe a little bit more uh, 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 open so to new laws in many countries, moment. including the U.S., protect workers' rights to organize. Uh, Roy, if a workforce does try to organize, uh, what are steps employers should take to be informed and build a healthy relationship uh, with their workforce in the midst of such organizing? Well, first of all, I'll just say, you know, I'm not confident, actually, that the law does a very good job of protecting hmm. workers' right to organize. Uh, you know, the penalties that companies face mm -hmm. if they break the law is that a couple of years later, they get a small fine. I mean, it's like it's <laughs> it's sort of protects workers in the same way that the law against crossing the street when it's a, you know, don't walk sign, you know, protects you from jaywalking. It's like, no, you know, the, you, it, it may be against the law, but the consequence if you do it is pretty modest. And, you know, the other way which I think it, there are many other ways in which I think the law is inadequate. One is that it really doesn't cover contractors in any material yeah. way. I mean, it does, that there are definitely protections for contractors. And the other is that it really assumes people working in person. And so to get to your point about remote work, you know, if I'm working in person, pulling everybody aside in the break room and having a conversation with them about what we ought to do is a lot more straightforward than, you know, if I'm uh, working, you know, in a yeah. gig economy job through an app where it's like, hey, if I want to communicate with all the other Lyft or Uber drivers, <laughs> good luck right. finding them. And so um, I think that the now to answer your question about what employers ought to do is I think the first thing they ought to recognize is that you know, well, sure. first let me describe some empathy for them. It's like, let's say you're running a business, maybe, and I'm a startup investor. So imagine the companies that people have built themselves. And then all of a sudden, what happens? You get an email from an anonymous Gmail account saying your employees are unionizing. You have 48 hours to decide uh, whether or not you want to voluntarily recognize the union or else we're going to go public with a campaign attacking mm -hmm. the company for X, Y, and Z things. And it's like, oh, <laughs> crap, you know, what do I do here? And so, uh, you know, and, and and by the way, many of the employers that have faced these campaigns are, are certainly no worse and oftentimes better in their treatment of employees um, or, and workers than others. And so I really do empathize with how difficult a situation that is. And what happens is you say, wait a minute, I know this is a big thing. I know that I don't understand it very well. And so let me go find an expert. And one of the challenges is that the experts that are most readily available, who are generally law firms that specialize in supporting management in labor issues, mm -hmm. usually, not always, there are exceptions, but and there are many exceptions, but they, the default is that they come in with a don't trust them, fight them, you can't trust these people, you know, kind of a thing. And, you know, the thing about adversarial relationships is it only takes one party to decide the relationship is adversarial and then bam, all of a sudden you have it. And so the first thing you have to do as a CEO is slow down and think for a second, which is, wait a minute, 
if I go after telling my workforce that they matter to me and that there's a war for talent, to use that old phrase, mm -hmm. if I then turn around and say, oh, I hear you saying you want this, but let me disparage you and attack you, good luck holding um, the respect of your workforce. And so, you know, thinking about how to respond authentically, where many business leaders believe that it is not in their interest to have a union. I'm not sure that's always true, but, but they believe that. Even if they do believe that, figuring out how to respond and engage respectfully and authentically, especially when somebody is coming at you, they're coming at you in an adversarial way is not easy. So slowing down and thinking, finding some experts other than the ones who are default available. And Tom and I have been involved in putting together a group at the Aspen Institute that is a membership club of CEOs and investors who want to think differently about mm -hmm. how to relate to organized labor. It's called the Aspen Business Roundtable on Organized Labor. So we're now a group you can call because we recognize there wasn't anybody else uh, to call. And then based on what you're hearing from the workforce about what they want, think about, can you build a constructive relationship with them? Effectively, I don't know if I think negotiation is quite the right first word, but um, exploring how everybody can get what they want. And this is the part where maybe I'm too much of an optimist, but I'm a startup investor, mm -hmm. so, so forgive me, is um, I think there are many ways that the presence of an organized workforce can actually be helpful in running the company so that it is more successful, so that it has a better chance of being better than its competitors. I mean, you know, you cited the statistics about how more people uh, approve of unions now than at any mm -hmm. point in decades in the United States. I think the last time it was this high was in the late 60s. Well, imagine you build a constructive relationship with your organized workforce Presumably, that means that that public opinion then lands on you in a positive way. It may also land on your customers in a positive way. There's some, you know, anecdotal uh, evidence to suggest that uh, workforces that organize do things like provide better customer service. You know, you can imagine. I mean, I can go through lots of ways that an organized workforce can help a business. And as a former CEO. There are times I would have loved, instead of guessing at what my workforce wanted, to sit down with a counterpart and say, hey, we want to introduce such and such new technology. How do we do it? Let's figure it out together. Let's right. figure out how to do it quick because it's in everybody's interest. So slowing down, stopping and thinking, getting the right expertise. Tom already said, you know, make yeah. sure you follow the law, um, which, by right. the way, right. many companies don't do in the same way I jaywalk when I cross the street. Um, but the consequences here for somebody else are a lot higher. And then craft a yeah. plan. Well, well. You know, in addition to that, it, it, it's it's like so. I was struck last week watching Howard Schultz before a committee, and you know, they're clearly you know, here's here's a company that seemingly has 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 tried to do right in a lot of different realms, and yet, you know, there seem to be particular legal pitfalls that people can fall into. Um, maybe you guys could talk a little bit about what some of those legal pitfalls are and how they might be avoided. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.com. Dot org. 
Now, let's get back to the episode. Well, I'm not sure. What do you mean by legal pitfalls? Because, you know, any major American corporation doesn't tend to accidentally break the law. But, but, but you have at least listening to uh, the perspectives around the table. And I realize some of this gets uh, moved out from a, you know, political perspective where you've got certain members of Congress who are adamantly pro-union and you've got some that are adamantly uh, defensive around any attacks. Um, I'm just wondering, are there are there things that are slip ups in terms of communications or how one communicates uh, that start to cross the line legally that companies should be aware of? Well, just look, let's look at the facts uh, in, in Starbucks and that'll help us. And, and I think you have to start from the fact that Howard Schultz uh, uh, believes with some credibility, some fact that that Starbucks has been a good employer, as, as uh, Roy said earlier. It's not always the, the worst employers, it's sometimes better employers. And, and Starbucks has, has uh, provided good uh, benefits for sure. Uh, reasonable wages and uh, and 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 tries to uh, have uh, concerns for employees uh, uh, at the top or near the top of their list. So along now comes Howard Schultz, and he said, "I built this mm-hmm. company in in a way that uh, I'm very proud of." And the first problem uh, is that he takes this personally, and we find that that's uh, almost universal. Someone says, "Gee, they don't appreciate everything mm-hmm. I've done." Yeah. And you saw that in the hearing, if you watch the hearing. He just feels that he is the one who's got the grievance against uh, these outside forces. The second thing is, and he he thinks it's all outside forces that are uh, uh, a third party, to use that terrible uh, way of (laughs) describing uh, his employees and their union, uh, that's causing all of this. And he creates a, a, a mindset then in the company that says we've got to fight this and uh, they've got the power to do so. And he doesn't care whether uh, the law is uh, 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 being broken or not. He's gonna put all those resources. He did hire uh, a a famously uh, anti-union set of uh, lawyers, law firm to uh, uh, fight the organizing. And then once uh, once, uh, employees even vote for a union, uh, they stonewall it in first contract negotiations. So that's, you know, this, it, it's a sad, sad commentary on a good company that has the resources to build a high quality labor management relationship if they want to, uh, to go down that road. And I think it's partly because there's a, there's a one man uh, autocratic leadership uh, style here who has decided, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't want this to happen. It's attack on me. Uh, and uh, therefore, I'm going to respond as if I'm the victim. And I think that's a terrible example of, of management and lack of leadership um, uh, in, in, uh, in this particular instance. Tom, let me, let me follow up on that. In your HBR article, uh, you, you wrote, if workers exercise that right, meaning the right to organize, the best and fairest thing to do is just get out of the way. So is that always the case? You don't have to get totally out of the way. Management has, as, as we've said before, a, a legal right to express its views. And I have no problem 
with management saying, I don't think uh, a union is the right answer to whatever the concerns are. But the first thing is to recognize these are mm -hmm. real concerns. They're coming from the workforce. And in the Starbucks case, it's not that they hate Starbucks. That many of the baristas are very proud of working for Starbucks, but Starbucks isn't living up to the values that it espouses. They call them partners. Do they treat them as partners? They don't feel like partners. And you can't say you're a partner, but uh, if you don't feel like it, that's your problem, or there, it's some outside force that doesn't help you see it. That's the way the, 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 the employees are responding. They want better schedules. They want, uh, uh, in some cases, mm -hmm. higher uh, wages and better benefits. They want uh, to be proud of working at Starbucks and provide uh, better uh, customer service. And you have these long lines that they have to contend with. And so listening to the workforce and then saying, all right, let's figure out how we're going to uh, 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 respond to this. And if you vote for unionization, then let's, as Roy said, let's build a relationship that, uh, that addresses these issues together. And we can do this in partnership and improve customer service. We know that. We know there are ways to do it. We've seen it in other organizations. We've studied this stuff. Uh, adversarial relationships hurts customer service. High um, satisfied unionized workers who feel they are being treated fairly uh, produce uh, better customer service. And so let's figure out how you to know, do and that. I, the, the only thing I'd add is that, yeah, the only thing I'd add is that the nature of workers' wants, of course, changes with time. And we now live in a country where workers are under more pressure than they've been before. I mean, between political extremism, uh, regardless of your politics, I think everybody can agree that we have an environment yeah. <laughs> where there's more extremism than there was. Um, the, you know, the pandemic uh, and everything that has come through it and... In a way, I think this is the chickens coming home to roost on what companies have done, including, and this is your bailiwick, including from a communications perspective, which is to say, right. you know, a, a, a journalist who I follow, Derek Thompson from The Atlantic, said work went from jobs to careers to callings, meaning many companies have been out there for a long time saying, this is more than just a job. This is your family. It's your identity. Mm -hmm. It's your bring your whole self to work. And it's like, well, if you want somebody to bring their whole self to work and the world is putting all these pressures on them, those are going to show up at the workplace. And so they're going to want to see companies, if companies profess, you know, progressive values, then of course the workplace is going to hold them to a higher standard than if they say, we're just a bunch of ruthless capitalist pigs. So, you know, uh, uh, which, so of course, a Starbucks that has been an icon for professing progressive values is going to get held by its workforce to a different standard in order to be authentic than a company that doesn't. And so that tends to show up in how you know workers and management relate to one another. And I think it is one of the reasons why it's a uniquely modern problem. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So let me ask you both. I mean, you've expressed the benefits of unionization in a, a healthy relationship. Are unions generally good everywhere? And, and hear me out here. I, in the introduction, I talked about organizing things like college dorms, where resident assistants 
are organizing. Graduate students have had a sort of a history, and now undergraduate students who might work um, in a physics lab or somewhere else uh, across the country are 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 organizing. How do you how do you think about as an institution, an enterprise, whether it's a company or a higher ed, uh, when it's right or not right for you? Well, I, let, let me let me speak to that because it's it's the it's all of those student organized or student workers and others, and adjunct mm-hmm. faculty. It's their right. choice. It's the wrong question okay. to ask. What should I do to influence that choice? What workers make the choice. And as Roy said, there's a whole bunch of things that are leading more people to say they want a union uh, today than uh, ever in the history of the time I've been working on this mm-hmm. for four decades. And the data are very clear on that. But management has the, the dominant role in shaping what that relationship looks like. And you can have an adversarial relationship, which will be dysfunctional for the organization, or you can work to try to build a positive, what we call high road labor management relationship that that respects workers' rights, treats them uh, as partners, bargains for the issues which are important for for the organization to protect, but then listens and uses that negotiations and the ongoing relationship as forums to solve problems. Now, are all unions ready to do that? No. And you have to make a judgment and you have to test that and you have to demonstrate that you're willing to move in that direction, but you need it takes mm-hmm. two to partner. And so you have to be careful if the union isn't ready for it, then you may have to take a more limited approach to this or a step-by-step approach. But it's wrong to think that the employer should determine whether the employer thinks it's a good idea for uh, the workers. They, the employer can express their concerns or their views, but leave that decision to the employees and then build the relationship that makes it work. Uh, yeah, for and I just add, not all unions are created equal. Just because when you don't know much about something, you tend to lump it into a single category. And mm-hmm. unions are complex creatures with many levels, lots of history. I mean, even just take Starbucks, you know, the Starbucks unionization is sort of a four unions at different levels collaborating together from a regional union to a union that's national, that is a member of another union. And so understanding the nuance is really important. And the one thing I just want to say is there are definitely cases where a union harms the performance of a company. And I think we need to be honest about that. And in the same way that we are calling on business leaders to innovate, many of the labor leaders we know also recognize that when, for example, a CEO voluntarily recognizes a union only to find that the performance in that group immediately falls off a table, that that's a problem for everybody, not just for the business, but for the union. And so I think we need to be realistic here that we're talking about complex institutions Mm-hmm. with complex interests and you know welcome to modern leadership it's not a thumbs up or a thumbs down it's an explore a new way of thinking about it recognize you have lots of options and that you have a lot of agency and one more thing i'll just say about the law is a lot of companies use the law as an excuse mm-hmm. not to innovate 
they're unfamiliar and they say, well, but the law doesn't allow this. And it's like, well, the way the law changes is by people trying things that are that are new and may work better. And so in some level, I think what we're doing here is it's a call for everybody to set aside the old stereotypes that are outdated, broken, and not serving us and invent together new ways of doing things. It's not going to be easy. It's not always going to be great. But when it works, it could be profound. And I think this is the only way as a country but, but we get out of this Some mess. of these companies sort mm -hmm. of guided by their lawyers say we're concerned about setting a precedent that we don't want to get locked into. Isn't that part of the problem is, is that kind of mentality? Sure. I mean, look, one way of looking at this is all the things that have been on some level good for companies, not all the things, many of the things that have been good for companies, flexibility to decide things in the future, just in time scheduling are the things that are bad for workers. And so there's a, a push and pull here where, yeah, you mm -hmm. might set a precedent that could limit your ability to make changes in the future. And that might be OK. By the way, companies do that all the time. You know, they do customer relationships where they set a price. They make a statement in public that binds them in the future. And so the idea that companies should preserve flexibility at all costs comes at a very high cost. And so mm -hmm. that's the that's the challenge I feel like we're trying to navigate here together. So, uh, Tom, some companies through the years have tried to uh, bifurcate, if, I, if, if you will, the relationship they have with their employees. And then on the other hand, the relationship they have with the union. Uh, that is, they, they would say that they negotiate with the union, but they find ways to embrace and love their employee. Is there any problem with that approach? There's no problem with that approach. In fact, that's part of what we would encourage. But you have to do it in partnership uh, with the union. You can't go around the union. That that will get you in trouble every every time. But if you work with the union leaders, so to, let's be specific about it. Um, there are organizations where uh, you know you're going to negotiate a contract. Hopefully, you negotiate that using state-of-the-art principles that we teach in business schools all over the country and certainly at, at, at BU, it's, it's taught uh, by very good people about how to negotiate on an interest-based approach, both in business transactions and in, uh, in labor and, and, and other, uh, other negotiations. Well, apply those principles as best you can in the first round of, of negotiations, set the tone for it. But then once you reach an agreement, then the work of building a relationship with the union and continuous improvement, uh, you know, has to be a very high priority because the union is going to negotiate a higher wage than companies would normally uh, offer, or at least a higher wage and benefit package um, than companies would uh, perhaps uh, do on their own. That's the long-term evidence. How does that work? Well, then you have to improve productivity so that you're not just absorbing the labor costs and it goes right to your you're you know, at the expense of the bottom line. And how do you build a high productivity, high wage relationship? You engage employees in problem solving. You, when you bring new technology in, as, as Roy said earlier, you ask employees for their input on how it's gonna affect their jobs, how we can integrate the technology with the work process to get the most innovation and the highest productivity. We know how to do that. That's not rocket science, but firms have to engage and share information with their employees and do that in partnership. Set those teams up uh, and over with, with, with the support 
of the, the union uh, leaders. That's done in lots of organizations. It's been done over the years at Ford Motor Company to great effect. We studied uh, Saturn and worked with them um, when General Motors set that up. Very team-based. Kaiser Permanente has over 4,000 now, what they call unit-based teams right at the workplace where doctors, nurses, service employees, um, and, and, and managers sit on a monthly basis and solve problems and, and come up with ways to improve operations and safety and uh, patient service and so on and patient uh, care. So that's what you need to do. And then you need to move it up to the higher level so that there's information sharing um, between the CEOs and the senior executives and the union leaders on a periodic basis so that they learn about the business, they know what's coming, there's uh, an opportunity to pick up the phone when there's a problem and say, hey, we've got a real problem over here in mm -hmm. X unit or facility. We got to deal with it. And, and both the union person or, the, or the, the management leaders need to have that kind of a relationship that they can, they can call up uh, their counterpart yeah. and say, hey, well, what, kind of what, what do you've, we do you've about it together? sort of drawn a map for here, uh, seemingly good from a strategic standpoint, good from a process standpoint, but oftentimes in these situations, we're dealing with a behavioral matter or how people react in a given situation. And when executive leadership of a company and a union representing large numbers of employees are at odds with one another. I just wonder, is it naive to expect corporate leaders to react differently other than defensively? Uh, you know, and they would claim, you know, they're protecting their margins. Uh, they see uh, a lot of competitive interest for trying to continue to pursue what they're pursuing, and they're concerned about shareholder value. Well, that's the old playbook, and, and they've been able to get away with it because the shareholders have been so much more powerful in the last uh, 40 years. You know, I'm old enough to know and broke into this field when uh, workers were powerful stakeholders, and that meant uh, the, labor, the job of the labor relations vice president or whatever the title was, was to build the relationship with the union leaders and to really manage the relationship so you got higher productivity, and you got the workers' voice and the union's voice reflected in managerial and executive decisions and discussions. Now that labor relations person has no power. The HR people have no power. It's all shareholder value. Well, if that's the, the case, then there's going to have to be a power, a change in the power relationships. So we have a better balance so that you can't just say, hey, I can't do this because my shareholders won't won't support it, or I'm only going to focus on that. That's an American disease of financialization that has grown up over the last 40 years. And I don't think any of us who have studied this and worked on these issues are bashful about saying that has to change. And that's what's going on here in the country today, that workers for the first time in a long time have a sense of power. Not Whether they have real power or not is, is still a debatable and, and an open question but they are exercising it in a way that says, this is not fair and we are going to speak up and we're going to try to mobilize in a way that uh, rebalances these relationships. There's we don't also, know how this by the way, an opportunity out. here for CEOs. I mean, here's a paradox. One of the paradoxes of modern business is it's pretty clear 
business leaders have never had more power in our society than they do today by so many different measures. And yet, when you hear them talking, they sound like victims. They sound like, oh, look at my employees, you know, telling me they want more money, but I already pay them so well. It's like, I'm sorry, did you go to your board and say, you know what, guys, I'm cool. I, I, I don't need to get paid anymore. It's, you know, and they say, oh, I can't innovate. It's the law and or the shareholders. And the reality is it's time for business leaders to lead. It's time for them to say, you know what, if we want things to work better, I'm going to have to stretch. I'm going to have to push on some of my shareholders. And there is a big opportunity here, because if you look at the business leaders in history, including American history, who innovated in these ways, sometimes under duress, mm. sometimes proactively, everybody from Edward Filene, you know, who, you know, for those of you in the Boston area know as a, the great, <laughs> a great retail entrepreneur, exactly. to, to the CEM of General Motors, the CEO of General Motors, who struck the deal that gave us you know, regular raises, paid health care, weekends, you know, in, in labor history, they look at the role of the United Auto Workers in striking that deal, mm -hmm. which was called the quote unquote Treaty of Detroit post-World War II. It was struck with General Motors and then expanded to others in the auto industry. And eventually it became the template for modern work. Well, the CEO of General Motors at the time, Charlie Wilson, quote unquote, Engine Charlie, became Secretary of Defense in the United States after that, became a, was a respected national figure. And so the question to me is, when are the powerful CEOs going to do things that some CEOs already do? I'm not trying to disparage everybody and say, you know what? Okay, I've got shareholders. Okay, I've got the law. I can figure out a way to navigate that and do yeah, something better. In, in some ways, hasn't the environment, though, changed a bit more recently because of the pandemic, because of the pressure uh, for where, where employees are asking for greater flexibility? And, and some of the recent discussions around organizing or wage and benefits campaigns, it seems that unions are more forthrightly positing not so much an increase in wages or benefits, but increasingly uh, the discussions are around work-life balance. It's about greater flexibility. It's about respect. It's about uh, participation in a different kind of way. Or, or, or is, is that just an impression of mine or is this really happening that there's kind of these softer demands? Yeah. No, I think, I think that's valid in the sense that workers want more. And why do they want more? Because companies have told them that they should expect more because the society is not giving them the things that they want. And so, yeah, they want things other than wages and benefits. They want, I mean, I don't know, do you want things other than wages and benefits? I sure do. I want to feel fulfilled at work. I want to feel aligned in my values with the place that I work. And you know what? It's I, One of the basic things here is people can want whatever they want. And it's up to the institutions to navigate how to best get people the things that they want. Everybody won't get everything they want. It'll eventually be a negotiation. There'll be a lot of hard choices to make. But as a business leader, I think you need your counterparty to be powerful to have a good relationship. You can't have a good business partnership with a powerless party. And so workers being powerful probably produces a healthier balance in the long term. In the HBR article, you talk about um, some things that companies should not be doing. And I want to bring it back to our listeners, the uh, people who are listening to this podcast, who are communicators. And in your comments today on the podcast and in that article, you indicate that uh, CEOs and companies can be sort of ham-handed 
if that's the right phrase for say, things they say or uh, yeah. write <laughs> about about unions. And um, one of the things that you recommend they not do is avoid making empty statements in support of workers' rights. So let's flip that. How should uh, almost literally CEOs and company executives talk about unions these days in the words they use and in the relative level of authenticity? Well, the loudest they... words there are, and I imagine as communication professionals, you know this, the loudest words there are are actions. And which mm-hmm. is to say, regardless of what words you state, what policies you have matter a lot. And I'd be looking at the examples of companies that are innovating. I mean, take Microsoft. Microsoft mm-hmm. declared proactively it would be neutral toward unionization efforts. It would not express that it had a view uh, one way or the other. And then they've followed that as they've seen you know, pockets of people trying to unionize in different parts of the organization. They then had the integrity, have had the integrity to stick to what they said they would do. Now, they had their own reasons for doing that, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the short version is your actions have to lead. And you know, it's to say that your employees are partners and then have an empty seat for them in the boardroom that you're not willing to fill with a human being when they're asking to fill it, and then give raises to everybody else who isn't unionizing and claim, I think erroneously, that you're not allowed to give raises to somebody without bargaining over it, is nonsense. And so- Make take the actions that provide for an opportunity for dialogue and then speak truthfully about it. Don't do things you normally wouldn't do. I mean, it's it's sort of not it's not a very complicated recipe. You don't need chat GPT to figure out how to do this one. <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Roy and Tom. This has certainly been a spirited conversation and it, it uh, obviously reflects the years of work that you've done on this and, and, and does reflect the times. Uh, there certainly is no doubt that workers, and, and I love, Tom, the way you put it, are feeling empowered and, and uh, today more than they have in the past. Yeah. And we'll see you. So thank you, Roy and Tom. Thank you for both being for on the reaching Crux. out, Gary and Mike, to yeah, do this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.